Bitcoin fixes the money, the Beef Initiative fixes the food and nutrition. Step into some new awareness that incorporates some much needed food intelligence into your life. This is Texas Slim with Texas Slim's vision. Today we have Matt Hodler of 2014. Matt has worked in the industrial food complex. He is a hardcore Bitcoiner educator, advisor, consultant, and he'll be joining the Beef Initiative to help spread the food intelligence and the access and on-ramp into the understanding of what Bitcoin does. This is going to be a fun ride. Come along. This is going to be a multi-part series that you're not going to want to miss. I ask that every one of you share this podcast with your family, with your friends, with your local food producers. Let's get this thing going. The Beef Initiative has launched. It's beefinitiative.com. Come check us out. Let's have a conversation and let's some, shake some hands and let's uh, let's change the food industry as we know it. We got out better. There you go. That sounds great, man. Excellent. Maybe I'll just eat the mic a little more. Um, so we went out there and it was like an hour drive away. And uh, luckily, uh, the Mr. and Mrs. owners of the farm made the time to sit under a tree with us. So for probably three hours, we just ran our mouths and talked about it. And they led with some really interesting stories about how they had helped people with a leaky gut or they were missing um, the lubrication in their joints. And so they just, they started with a bunch of health stories about, Hey, there were people that came with serious medical problems that the medical field was not able to uh, cure. However, our dairy, our animals, our proteins help solve that. And so they just shared some stories that were pretty remarkable. That, I mean, that's amazing. Is it, how long a uh, trip was that from Austin? Oh man, it's gotta be just an hour outside, like maybe mm-hmm. 50 minutes at that. So that's easy. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say easy afternoon and they were so generous with their time. We probably chatted for several hours of everything from the economics of the farm to why they do it, how long it's been in their family and uh, kind of the change they're hoping to bring to the world. You know, it's, it's great because whenever you tell me you went and had that day, um, you know, just from the beginning, what have we said? Let's go, let's go shake a rancher's hand. It's like, here, it, it here, exactly that. here you are, Matt, doing it. Um, it I want to hear more about it. Um, thanks for joining today. Uh, I'm honored to know you. And uh, we've already started a good relationship as far as working together, uh, getting to know each other. I want to kind of start from the beginning with you because I have, I don't think I've ever met anybody in person that started out in 2014 in Bitcoin. So you have a good story and I want you to kind of lead into that and let's let's start this journey today. Well, hey guys, my name is Matt and uh, I found Bitcoin in the year 2014. Um, It's pretty early, but not super early. So it, you know, it's all a matter of perspective. Um, I got into Bitcoin because I was really looking for censorship resistant money. I had uh, two experiences in my life where my bank said, you know, the money in your account, Matt, is not yours. You don't get to use it right now. And so once I was in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, and I walked around for the better part of a week asking people, you know, can I sleep on your floor tonight? Can you buy me a loaf of bread? Can you buy me a jug of water? I'm not a drug tourist. I just don't have access to my accounts right now. So, you know, you could brush that off as a funny travel story. 
because you know these things happen when you travel. But it happened again when I was stateside. Uh, I had put a renter into a property I had owned, and the bank said, "Hey, Matt, uh, your cards have been uh, stolen." And so I called the bank and I two-factor authenticated and said, "Hey, it's Matt. I've got the cards. There's no fraud." They said, you know, well, we sent a paper statement to your house and we got a return to sender. And I said, oh, yeah, I just put renters in the house. And the bank said, well, you need to come into a branch. And I said, this is strange. I've purchased three houses. I've never been into a branch before. I have the cards. And they said, well, that's what you need to do to reactivate your account. And I said, so you have my money and nothing's been stolen from me and the cards are not fraud, but I don't have access to that money. And so um, I had to take a day off work and go to the far side of LA because this was a tiny credit union that had branches nowhere close to where I live. And so after running into the problem of not being able to make transactions when I needed to or not have access to my wealth when I desired to use it, um, I sat down and I Googled how to send money to anyone anywhere at any time and came across Bitcoin. And so I went ahead and purchased some. And the next day, I realized that almost nobody accepted it. So I had this money that I could zip around the planet. I just had to go convince people that they wanted to accept it. That I think that's um, I think that we're still in that. Of course, uh, it's been many years since then. Seven years since you yeah. know, full years, I guess, probably since you had that experience. Um, as far as you know, it was an easy orange pill moment for you personally because you had to. You know, you, you were living it and yeah, so you, I got, you had to apply something different than you had, had a lot of faith in right i got really fortunate right um i'm a white guy from the united states life's pretty easy i am not a financial terrorist i am not a troublemaker like i have no reason to get deplatformed i'm not a refugee i'm not part of the wrong religious minority i don't live under a totalitarian dictatorship like the problem i encountered is something that the rest of the world encounters on a daily basis but in the West, we just don't notice because our banking system works really well. And the couple people that get deplatformed every year are uh, big rabble rousers, if you will. And yeah, they could have seen it coming. So I got into it for the idealistic purposes of, you know, I want money that other people can't tell me what to do with. And that's a little bit idealistic because that's why I got into it. So some people come for a number go up and let's get rich. And that's reasonable. But I got into it mostly for the, I'm looking for an equal set of rules. And that set of rules I find so valuable in Bitcoin because anyone can participate. And that's very different than the banking world. The banking world says you can, you can't. You're allowed to send money here. You're not allowed to send money here. Bitcoin, everybody's allowed to send money to anybody. Well, it just the simplicity of it is complex of what you just said. And I think that a lot of people don't even know how to start to approach the ethos of that type of thinking, because, you know, we're very, you know, you, you're a very successful, um, you've had a successful career. You're very successful with your education, personal and through the formal institutions and everything. Um, and you had an ease of use. You had, you didn't have much friction using our monetary system yeah using dollars worked great for the vast majority of my life and it just happened that two particular instances rubbed me the wrong way in such a wrong way that i said i need to go do something about this because i i kind of have this theory that you have to touch the stove twice before you learn the lesson the first time if you grab the burner it's hot and you don't really make the connection that you got burned because of the stove but the second time you get that reinforcing oh i got burned because i touched a hot stove 
So the first time you don't have access to your money, you just kind of say, eh, you know, it's unfortunate. You laugh it off and say, man, did I get a serving of humble when I was abroad? But then it happened again for the second time. And I said, you know, maybe this is a problem that really does need a solution in my life. And since you're, you're a pretty well-educated fellow and everything, how did you go about learning about it to where not, not like physical, not like books, nothing like that. I'm talking about your mental makeup. How much did you commit yourself to, to be very intentional about your education that you were about to embark on? Was it one of discovery and excitement? Was it of an intimidation? Uh, was it of, you know, the unknown, all of the above? Yeah. At the beginning in 2014, there weren't a lot of resources. Right. Like there might've been two podcasts with Andreas Antonopoulos. That was it. Like nobody was really making content and the content that started to come out, uh, maybe in like 2015, 2016, 2017, the people didn't really understand it on the podcast. They were just looking at it from a bunch of different angles, trying to figure out what this Bitcoin thing is. And so a lot of the talk revolved around what's the killer use case for Bitcoin at the time. So now, Hey, we have a million different answers because it can be anything. Right. You can have it as an investment. You can have it as savings. You can have it as a money transmission layer. And in Jack Mahler's sense, you can have it as the asset or the network. So really, it's anything because you can look at it a million different ways. <clears throat> so when I got interested in it, I had a passing interest because, you know, no one takes it. And so I said, well, how does it work? How do I play with it? How do I use it? How do I go buy socks? Like the very basics, right? Sure. And then at some point after you make a few transactions and you think you know about it, you know, as the value that you store in Bitcoin continues to go up and up and up, you say, maybe I should know a little bit more about this because it's becoming a bigger percentage of my net wealth. So, you know, when Bitcoin was $200, you didn't really care because, you know, you had an amount of it. And it, you know, if you lost it, that's okay. It wasn't the end of the world. But as the price continued to climb to 10,000, 20,000, 30,000, I needed to know more because the financial advisors in my life didn't understand it. They said, hey, kid, you got lucky. Get out. Don't touch that. Walk away. And I kind of looked at it and said, if we're so early that other people don't understand it, maybe there's an advantage to knowing a lot more about it than a lot of other people. And then I just found it more and more fascinating and more articles came out and more people joined up and met in person and started publishing and stumbled onto the Bitcoin Twitter and said, oh, this is a whole different set of confusion. But I just, I couldn't stop looking at it because as an idea, it's just fascinating. Yeah, it's I mean, it's never ending, you know, the rabbit holes, it goes on forever, you know, it, it's I a party saying that says if anyone's found the bottom, I would love to talk to them because I'm still falling down it. Sure. Yeah, why not? And if it's a bottom, it's probably just a little ledge that you got to hit and bounce off of and keep on going down. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you can visualize that. Talking about it, everybody that's here, most people that are listening to this, it's changed their lives as far as understanding the philosophy or trying to understand the philosophy, the decentralized thought process, the ethos that we're all pursuing and everything. You come from a very centralized uh, career path, a very centralized type of thinking within that career path. I want oh, yeah. everybody to kind of know your background so we can kind of, people can understand like where you and I are going with our conversations because we're going to have many more moving forward. But, you know, yeah. whenever you met me and your experience in the centralized world was fascinating to me. So let's explain that first and tell me how your life has changed since 2014 until what you're doing right now. Gotcha. 
So for a career background, um, I got really lucky. So I have double undergraduate degrees. And then right after the great financial crisis, I skipped instead of going to a couple of years of work, I started an MBA program. So I have a lot of degrees. They don't really do anything because, you know, hey, you're qualified. You get this thing, put it on the wall. Okay. So I started my job uh, working at a water bottle company and I made billions and billions and billions of water bottles. Um, I worked on the procurement side and I bought molecules. I bought the plastics, moved them all around the country, bought them from overseas, did import, export, you name it. <clears throat> so after doing that for a couple of years, I switched over and I worked for a mayonnaise and salad dressing company along with deep frying oils. And they made about 4 billion pounds a year of seed oils. That's what I did. <laughs> we all know that that is not healthy in any way, shape or form. And when I started, I didn't realize that, but after you kind of figure it out and realize that you might be poisoning the entire planet by telling everyone to deep fry everything and then putting salad dressing. That's mostly science on your salad. Maybe this is not something that I should be involved with. And so I wrapped up my day job there and I transitioned to another company that made uh, frozen appetizers. So they made taquitos, burritos, uh, chimichangas, pot stickers, um, cheese sticks, deep fried mushrooms, deep fried green beans. You know, again, everything is deep fried. And I did that for a couple of years. And so most of my time was on the buy side, on the purchasing or procurement. So I bought millions of pounds of grain, millions of eggs, uh, tons of flour. And I've done everything from uh, used contracts and CME futures all the way to organizing uh, the hyper local hay farmer. I'm going to need 10,000 pounds of this very particular color of jalapeno or hatch chili. Can you please contract this growth season for my business? So I worked in giant institutions in a corporate tower and got to see so many things behind the scene about how the incentives are just dead wrong and how that giant corporation is not pushing health. They have funny narratives and the narratives will say delighting our customers or bringing the wow. And you're kind of say like, you know, as a corporate slogan, bringing the wow doesn't, doesn't really work for me. Like, I guess we can put it on a t-shirt, but you know, is this really why I'm on the planet? Is this the best I could be doing? So I got to see it from a crazy centralized view. I traveled all over the country. Uh, again, you can't bring the factory to you. So I went to factories. Uh, one year I spent 88, 0% of days on the road. So I've seen factories big and small. I've seen farms, uh, very, very commercial, huge operations and seen industrial food be something that I don't want to be a part of anymore. The, the amount of stories that you can tell us and that you will tell us is you're going to be fascinating. You told me one that you, in the beginning, I, when I started the food intelligence harvest of deception, I said, your food has become nothing more than a marketing plan a very good global marketing plan. And yeah. a lot of people don't understand how to take that maybe, but you, oh, you told me something. Yeah. You told me, me, on me that one. Yeah. Let's, let's do that. So, because what you started with, you said, you know, I worked myself out of position and then I went over to marketing. Let's start yeah. there if you don't mind. Sure. So for one of my roles, I was very fortunate and I enjoyed it. I did a really big math problem. Now, some people hate math and this is their worst nightmare, but you know, I loved it. Um, I ran a math problem with six and a half million variables in it. And I took a model of our entire food distribution network. This is manufacturing facilities, manufacturing lines, warehousing capabilities, 
uh, shipping lanes to get it to the customer. I looked at overhead cost, fixed and variable, um, population density, projected growth, you name it, anything that I could gather as far as data. I took our entire business and modeled it. And I solved really easy to ask, very difficult to answer questions. If I have $10 million, how do I make the most money next year? Do you build a new warehouse? Do you do an inventory build? Or do you run uh, 24 hour shifts in your peak season? That's really easy to ask, very difficult to answer. And so I was answering those type of questions or, you know, where do we put our distribution network if we have four facilities or where do we put it if we have five facilities? If I have to make an investment, do I buy new manufacturing lines or do I buy overtime labor? So I worked in uh, an acquisition where that business acquired 250 million pounds of someone else's business. So business I was for 4 billion pounds a year, they bought a small book of business from somebody else. And I helped them say, this product should go to this facility, this line should go to this facility. Here's how everything shifts and rotates to make sure the operational side and the finance side is still profitable. Because when you get into 250 million pounds of business, it's non-trivial and the uh, dollars and pennies matter at scale. So I advised the business to, hey, here's the proper way where everything should land. And, you know, some people older than me said, Matt, I appreciate that, but you're wrong. We're going to stick it all in one facility. And so I showed them again and again that this is not going to work. It's going to blow apart. We're going to lose a bunch of business. The customers are not going to be satisfied. We're going to pay way too much in shipping. And lo and behold, that all occurred. And so at some point, the business lost a vast portion of that new book of business they bought. They actually took an impairment, which is like... Uh, pretty big write down because like somebody went, oops, we overpaid for that. It's no longer as valuable as we thought it was. And they looked at me and said, Hey Matt, we really appreciate what you did. Um, we need you to do something else because we fell on our faces so hard. We're not going to need this skill set in our business for a while. And so they said, you know, you're a smart kid. Well, we'd love you to go to marketing. And I was like, Oh, I don't know anything about marketing. Okay. So I moved into marketing and they had me making uh, pretty graphs and charts for the Cisco foods team. And Cisco foods is a huge distributor of tons and tons of calories. So that's what I did for, gosh, probably six months before I said, guys, I can't do this. This is, this is a joke. Um, one of the interesting things is we made salad dressings and they said, Matt, you need to tell us the new hot flavors of salad dressing. I said, cool. I have a resource. I can go online. I can look, I can tell you what flavors are trending, which ones are at peak, which ones are declining. I, I had access to this giant data set for that. Turns out most people like ranch dressing. And the marketing people say, we need something else besides ranch. Well, 80% of the salad dressing is ranch. What do you want me to do? Let's make a new flavor. Oh, we're going to make a blackberry hibiscus vinaigrette. That's not going to sell millions of pounds a year. It's just not. So at scale, it doesn't help your business at all. But the sales and marketing people say, ooh, we have something new that sizzles. Blackberry vinaigrette. Oh, man, let's push that. And then sell the ranch, which is the profitable part of the book of business. So did that. Um, the marketing side is just, it's so slimy. Right. Well, it, what it is, it's, it's fast moving. Marketing is fast moving. We, we have thousands upon thousands of, uh, advertisements thrown at us every day. <clears throat> it's a, it's a cutthroat world, especially on the, uh, institutional size, as far as global industrial, you know, there's powerful, powerful entities behind marketing. Um, I always yeah. tell people anymore, you know, Mar America is the best marketing uh, 
company in the world. You know, we, yeah. we know how to market things. We can, we can make things taste like we want them to taste. And that becomes the narrative that becomes the means to an end of the profit margins that we're searching for. You know, where, where is the discussion of true, pure, you know, nutrition, uh, anything like that? No, but like you said, they're going to wow you. Let's wow them with this food yeah. product. On the, on the buy side of stuff, I was responsible for buying food perfumes and fake food, right? So uh, let's, let's give an example, okay? So I worked at a burrito company. Yay, frozen burritos. Not the sexiest product, but we're all likely familiar with it. So sometimes they would say, you know, this product is too expensive to make. We need better margins. Let's go ahead and run a cost optimization or reformulation. So if that burrito started out as 50% beef, 50% beans, it's a pretty easy product. I need a tortilla. I need half beans, half meat. Cool. Well, if the price of beef gets more expensive, and I'm sorry, this is the more expensive for you. Um, as the beef price increased, they said, you know, we're losing our shirts on this. We need to add more beans. Okay. So we moved from 50 to 60% beans. And maybe nobody notices because it's still mostly the same product. But then they do it again next year and they say, hey, the beef is still too expensive. We need to get back down to that dollar price point. So we shift again. Okay. So now we're at 40% beef. Maybe we're at 30% beef. Maybe we're at 10% beef. Maybe we start putting textured vegetable protein, which feels like beef, but is made out of plants. That's fake food. That's science, not food. Maybe we want a beefier flavor. So we buy food perfume, spray it in the burrito mix, and now it, the beans taste more beefy. This, okay. So maybe everyone is familiar with J Jelly Belly brand of jelly beans. You can get all these flavors. How the heck do they put a flavor in a jelly bean? My favorite flavor is the buttered popcorn. They take a molecule for buttered popcorn called diacetyl, and they put it into the jelly bean. This is legitimately perfume. Here's a designer molecule. Tastes like butter. Blast it in the jelly bean, and when you eat it, you smell retronasally the flavor of buttered popcorn. That's not food. That's science. It's fascinating because I, you, you go up to somebody and say, you know, your uh, taste buds have been hijacked, correct? I mean, how do you tell people your taste buds have been hijacked and make them understand it's very difficult because, you know, the mo one molecule you talked about right there is for a jelly bean. Can you only imagine the types of molecules that are inserted into every part of our consumption layer of food these days. I mean, it, it is something that has gotten so out of control. You, you design that taste bud system around science, as you say, you're, you're messing with the whole metabolical structure of your body because things I, change. I think the best example here is the fake meat, right? So if we have meat and someone said, let's go make fake meat, Okay, you can do it. We can take this, we can burn it up, we can mass spectrometer, we can figure out what's inside. Then we can go make it up with plants and specialty binders and all of these crazy, long, complicated process. Okay. But nobody knows really what that does. Right? Nobody knows, are these safe to eat in this quantity? Right? Now, people have been eating meat for a good long while. People haven't really been eating fake meat because we only recently invented it. So when we talk about the designer molecules or strange perfumes or, you know, manipulations, I went on a date with one of my girlfriends and we got the impossible hamburger side by side with the normal hamburger. And we both preferred the impossible hamburger. They can make food taste better than it should. 
Now, this makes sense if we're playing with food perfumes and designer molecules. If the normal beef flavor has a volume of five, yeah, of course, I can make the fake beef flavor a volume of seven. Well, of course, I'm going to prefer the volume of seven. So how you explain it to people that don't even know it's happening? I like to give them the Dorito example. If you have had a Dorito recently, you probably have a desire to eat another one. Why? Because there's so much going on with it in a flavor sense. But if you haven't had a Dorito, you probably have no inclination to go eat a Dorito. And you never will. And in I always ask people, why do you desire what you desire when it comes to your food? Have you broke that down yet? Have you got to the source of the seed of that taste, that molecule, that particle right. that makes you have that yearning that really takes you out of your, your system. It takes you out of your mindset. It, it creates desires that basically lead to nothing more except another desire. And it's never ending. It never stops, you know, and, and we get into like the uh, high velocity trash economy. Right. So Doritos are like, once you start, you have to keep eating them, but we, we know they're probably not ideal for you. And we know that the flavor is not something you can find in nature. You have to cook it up in a laboratory. So if we know it's not ideal and it's kind of cheating and you can't stop, isn't it just better to not start? But then you have to be intentional about your eating. And a lot of people don't want to have to think they're just outsourcing that to somebody else like me. I mean, I made food in a factory for other people so they didn't have to do it at home millions and millions of pounds, billions and billions of liters. The scale of everything that you saw within those years, um, you know, there's no questioning that you know exactly the infrastructure of our food supply in our food system. Do you actually understand the true power behind the centralization of the production of our food supply? So here you are working in that, that type of environment and you come across Bitcoin and you start yeah. looking at things. Tell me that thought process. So when I, I guess when I was doing the math problem, that's about as centralized as you can get. I was one guy sitting in front of a computer, trying to figure out what the future held. Build a factory here, solve for this demand here, switch these products here. That is like the most centralized it could be because nobody was making the decisions except for one person. The Bitcoin model is really, really different. It says everybody checks, everybody does the work, everybody keeps everybody else honest, anyone can participate. When I was in the food side of things, Every new vendor I talked with, I had to sign non-disclosure agreements. I had to have secret project names so people in the company couldn't even know what I was working on. There was one point when I couldn't tell my boss what I was doing all day. I had to go to my boss's boss to even talk about what I spent 40, 50, 60 hours a week working on because it was top secret. Now, in a merger environment, that makes sense. But in a reformulation of a burrito environment, I can't tell my boss what I'm working on because we're taking out cost and it's a competitive advantage. That's, that's weird. If the internet wants everything to be open, honest, and repeatable, and the company says, no, 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 this is a trade secret, don't tell anybody, it, they just they paint such a juxtaposition of how does the future get better? Which one is ideal? Which one do you prefer operating in? Something where anyone has the same information? something where you're a cool kid and other people aren't cool enough to know your secrets. It, it just started to make the world more 
more clear in a way that I did not have my eyes open to before because that was my day job. This is what we did. This is how to behave. This is how the clothes you wear, the thoughts you think, the centralization, the we can solve this with more dollars, more volume, or any other not ideal solution. We can get it with government subsidies. We can get it with, you know, we'll substitute this product because it's cheaper or an inferior quality or even something as shady as another competitor overpurchased. Now we're going to buy it from them at a steep discount because it's food and it is going to go bad, but we can manufacture it before it goes bad. So that type of centralized, like hyper-centralized idea versus the decentralized open nature of Bitcoin is they could not be more different. And once you realize that in that you're in the belly of the beast of the centralization of our nutrition delivery system that we call the industrial food complex, all of a sudden you want to change. I don't know. I, I, I figure you want to change your life a little bit, don't you? You want to change everything yeah. that you're looking at as far as what your consumption, what is your consumption yeah. model? And, and you being the mathematician and you being able to break that down on a personal level, I mean, that had to change your life pretty dramatically. Yeah. So I'm, I'm very fortunate that I, I don't mind failing. So I ran a bunch of experiments in my life to try and figure out what was going on. So I've had a ton of different diets. I've been veg, I've been vegan, I've been raw, I've been carnivore, I've been keto. I ate Soylent for two weeks. So that was an unenjoyable experience. Like I even consumed exogenous ketones. So no eating for a week, just drink science. And then all of a sudden you're not hungry. So I am very comfortable experimenting just because I want to know more. I want to see how I react to it. I want to see what everyone is talking about for this particular diet. So maybe it's professional hazard. I worked in food. I wanted to see all the different ways that one can feed a body. But I also wanted to optimize what was right for me. Uh, I found myself working out in the morning and then I couldn't make it to lunchtime. I was starving. I was eating a giant salad, even two salads. And I was like, this doesn't make sense. I work for a salad company. I'm famished. This like this is not this is not working for me so i switched into uh, a more i guess just a different set of mental models for what is health how often should one be eating what should one be eating maybe everything i know that the government taught me about food is wrong maybe this giant company i'm working for full of obese people doesn't really know how to make the world healthy and where did that lead you in the long run? How many years did that take as far as experimenting and uh, failing with a lot of different types of diets, of course, because they're designed to fail. They're designed yeah. to be based on a fiat standard. They're designed to not basically tell you the truth of what nutrition is. And they follow yeah. models that are institutionalized and they're bought and paid for. Right. It, it took me... It probably took me four years before I was really, really on the carnivore team. Mm -hmm. And then um, on the ketogenic carnivore style of like uh, animal-based eating, holistic foods, like I, I just found that my mental acuity was sharper. My uh, mood swings were far less. My performance at the gym was better. And so I said, hey, this is working for me. I'm going to keep doing it. But then people start to push back and say, well, what about cholesterol or what about heart health or aren't you worried about this and that? And it kind of makes you do more research because yeah, I guess there's two sides of the curve, right? You can try it as an experiment and see, hey, sample size of one mat, this is working. Or you can say, I have to know all the PhD mechanisms and molecule delivery for why it works. So one is trust. 
One is no, both work. You don't have to know how every mechanism works, but if you wake up feeling better every day, you're probably doing something right. So it took me maybe yeah, four or five years before I was really, really on uh, the carnivore or animal-based eating. And then you haven't looked back, of course. And one thing that I try to emphasize to people as well is like, this is, this is your new lifestyle. This is not, this is not a diet. This is, this is a way of thinking here. This is a way about changing intentional behavior into a low time preference mindset. That's not based on instant gratification or that desire of those chemicals of that science that's being pushed upon, you know, our society, especially now, you know, and that's where we, we see the dangers ahead of course and switching the mindset is so interesting because you know i worked in a corporate tower right so every day there was lunch and i would you know bring my lunch and typically it was a piece of steak or some ground beef or maybe some fish and i would just eat the animal and my colleagues would look at me like i was crazy they would say matt we're worried about your health and i would say you know i appreciate that and i appreciate your concern but you know like i'm gonna i'm gonna keep trying this And what I couldn't tell them was, you know, hey, you're 150 pounds overweight. I can't take your opinion seriously because it's an opinion. You don't get to have a valid opinion if you're this overweight about what I should and shouldn't eat. If you can't run around the block, if you can't run down the stairs in case of a fire, guys, you don't get to tell me how to be healthy. The uh, one anecdote I'll include here is um, the corporation I worked for had an incentive. If you go to get a health checkup, we'll give you cheaper health care. Now they're doing this to make sure you can get some preventative screening or catch stuff early. So I go to the doctor and they say, Matt, why are you here? And I say, uh, if, you know, if you guys sign this paper, I get cheaper healthcare. So quite honestly, I'm here so that you sign the paper. I just need a teacher's note. So they take my height and my weight and uh, they come back and they say, you know, Matt, you are uh, overweight in your BMI calculations. And I look at the gentleman and I lose it. I just start laughing because he's 58, 75, hundred pounds overweight. And I said, I'm overweight. How is this possible? What measures are we taking? Are we taking waist to ankle to neck measurements? Are we doing girth? Are we doing how big my deadlift is? Like one, you're wrong. Two, this is quite possibly the most ineffective way to categorize whether someone is fit or not fit. At the time I was lifting a ton of weights and had a great sense of muscle density. Yeah, of course I'm going to be on the high side of healthy. I was lifting a ton of weight. But having someone tell me you really need to watch what you eat while being way overweight, it's like you, what, who they are is talking so loudly. I couldn't hear what they were saying. Just, I have some pretty good relationships with the medical field as far as doctors, as far as clinics, you know, I, I go and talk to them and, you know, see what they're, you're, they're approaching one thing. And this is not a, once again, I always have to say, this is not judgment or this is not a stab or anything. It's what I've observed personally. And, you know, it's amazing how detached some of the medical field is within food intelligence as a whole. So, you know, when I started this, whatever you want to call it, um, when I started with the harvest of deception, I came up with food intelligence and I like to pe- I like to ask people, it's somebody, especially with your caliber of knowledge, what do you, what would you like to define food intelligence as being? Oh man, I think food intelligence is, knowing why you're making the decision of what you're putting in your mouth. And that's a very simple definition, but 
knowing that if you have animal protein, you're going to behave in this way. If you have animal fat, it's going to affect you in this way. So let me pause and give an example. I like to ride my bicycle, right? Got a nice one, goes fast. I love it. If I have 100 calories of beer or 100 calories of broccoli or 100 calories of butter, each one is going to affect my bicycle performance in a different way. So if I know that the calories are not created equal and the input output is not always the same direction, I want to know why I choose to eat what I eat. So if I eat a steak, I feel a certain way. If I have coffee with butter in it, I feel a certain way. If I have a beer, I feel a certain way. If I have ice cream, I feel a certain way. So to me, the food intelligence is not mindlessly consuming, but being intentional about why you're making the decisions you're making and knowing that it's okay to make different decisions than other people. Plenty of times I go out to dinner with people and I say, oh man, you have to get some of this. I would like a bite of the dessert, not the entire dessert. I would like a sample of the flavors on their plate, but I don't necessarily want to eat a salad because I know what's in the salad dressing. Uh, you know, being able to just take that sample, you know, a sample of a taste, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, this is there's the, the amount of uh, gray area within our food is something that we have to be very aware of. We can't be extremist about the education of what food intelligence is. And, you yeah, know, I, I think that's a super valid point that you know, people sometimes treat diet as religion. Right. And uh, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. I have had a lick of the icing on a chocolate cake, not even a whole piece. Right. <laughs> and they just they take that and they internalize it and they beat themselves up. And I tend to be much more forgiving and say, I would like to be right. Ninety five percent of the time. That's a really high level. A that gives me plenty of buffer, but it also leaves room for fun because food can be fun. Now, I'm not saying eat ice cream every day. But, you know, if you knock off a big life achievement and you want to go get one, do it. If you stay up late enough to get a donut after midnight with all the boys, that's okay. You don't have to be 100% perfect. Now, some people will chase it and some people won't be as robust. And, like, if they fall off the path, they know they're going to eat donuts for the next six months every single day. So know yourself. But the food intelligence part is why are you doing what you're doing? And are you thinking about it instead of just shoveling things into your face? And the one thing that we're doing to our kids, especially, is the, the only intelligence they have about food is starts directly on their taste buds, which we know is probably one, the, the biggest deception that's going on from the very beginning of our consumption model as far as, you know, how are we going to get them addicted to this? You know, oh my gosh. And, and the, for the, the kids. Yeah, go ahead. so big. So I worked at a company uh, that put a lot of MSG into their products, and that's monosodium glutamate. Um, it gives food a very rich or savory flavor, and I can sneak it into your food, and your food legitimately tastes better. Why? I just gave you a very unique flavor molecule, right? When you cook at home, you don't, you don't include that in your food. But when I cook at a factory, I, I know what I can do to get you addicted. I can deep fry it so you get that very satisfying crunch and your inner earlobe makes the noise, and you're like, oh, this hits all the receptors. Then I can make it taste cheesier for your bean cheese burrito by putting in cheese and then spraying it with cheese perfume. Oh, this cheese is twice as good as my normal cheese. Yeah, because it's not cheese. Oh, man, I got this. I got that. It's beefier. It's crunchier. It's thicker. It's gloopier. It's stringier. I know how to cheat. When you cook at home, you don't do that. When you cook at home, you add love. When you cook at a factory, there's no way to compete. So I have to cheat. 
and, and for people to 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 understand, you know, I talked about heritage and tradition when it comes to your food. You know how you know live like our grandparents did because they didn't have access to these type of chemicals, this type of science. And people are, well, I don't want to act old. I don't want to be, you know, that's not what I'm asking. I'm saying, let's look at food and how we prepared it before we got the science involved. Let's take a step back and let's give it some respect. And let's kind of start over as a, as a, as a, State, of course, is Texas because, you know, the beef initiative, but just as a nation, just as a as a whole, as a country, because we see the marketing plan and it is ramping up fast. We see the the food supply chain being choked and it's going to get choked even more. So getting people back into understanding, basically, let's cook at home again. Let's be safe with it. Let's protect. Let's create a little security. Let's reinvent what we think taste is and what and is let's, basically let's good nutrition. Minds on eating seasonally. I shouldn't be able to eat oranges all year. They grow once a year. I shouldn't be able to get raspberries all year. They also grow once a year. People get so used to going into a grocery store and having everything always available. Every flavor, every product, millions of options. And the marketing teams that has to keep coming up with new ideas. That's I, a good point. It's crazy to think that you should be able to source fresh bananas all year round. If it snows where you live, there's no banana tree in the backyard you can go pick. It's just not how it works. But yet we've come to agree that if I go to a grocery store, I have access to anything all the time. And I don't even have to go to a grocery store. I can just you know push my phone the right way and someone will bring it to me. I can type it on the internet and someone will deliver it to me. That That's not how food used to be. You made me uh, think back to my grandfather's farm and um, every year, you know, you ate differently in the fall and the winter than you do in the spring and the summer. And it makes right. me think of all the fruit that we regrew during the summer times. And then, you know, the fall harvest is different, you know, and how you carry that over as, as far as consumption models going into the holiday season. If you look at a plate of, you know, traditional Thanksgiving or a traditional Christmas dinner, it's different than what it is in July for sure. And right. in knowing that and kind of structuring maybe your thought process, your planning, your low time preference approach to food, you know, maybe that's what we can bring into more of the education but i like that as far as that you know that that clarity that that's pretty important actually one of the nice things is you can be hyper reductionist on an animal-based diet you can only eat animals heck you can only eat one animal if you say hey i'm gonna be a beef eater you can only eat beef there's plenty of people that are only eating beef okay if that is too restrictive or too unappealing, hey, what would you add next? What would you add next? What would you add next? But being intentional about what you're adding, so many people miss because all the marketing plans are, let me be shinier, let me be sexier, let me have your attention because I'm going to think or I'm going to convince you that this is better than that. But none of it's good. It's just corporate polish on a turd. Yeah, and I always like to tell people that, you know, fake value stacked on fake value, you know, and that's what we get with the devaluation of the dollar that has no value anymore. That's what we get because it touches our food supply. So every generation here, we're stacking more cheap 
hollow value on top of that value that got us here. Well, that cheap value has gotten us 78% of us are obese or overweight. One out of two of us are either diabetic or pre-diabetic. Our 46% of our children that are five to 11 are now overweight or obese. There's only one thing you can really point to here. And it's a lack of pure animal protein and a basically the, the proliferation of science into our food supply that is rampant and is out of control and that people don't really realize a chemical company controls your food supply. And just that's all you have to know right there. A chemical company controls your food supply. And it didn't used to be like this. This is a relatively recent invention. So uh, when I was in California, I grew tomatoes in my backyard. Those tomatoes were heirloom tomatoes. They're fantastic. They're wonderful. They're hundreds of generations old, but they don't ship well. So you can't buy them. They can't go through a loading dock. They don't fit on the back of a truck. They smush and go moldy. So they never show up in a grocery store. They also never come to a farmer's market because they're too fragile. So when food was local, you ate what was local. You ate what was seasonal. You ate with intention because if you have to grow the tomato plant to have a tomato, well, you better figure out what else you're going to eat because you can't only eat tomatoes. But people have lost that part because when we go to a supermarket, everything is available all year round. And when you walk into that supermarket, most of it in the center aisle is just vying for your attention. Yeah, it's 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 a cartoon anymore. I've got a picture that I took and you look at it, the supermarket, you know, the whole name, the phrase of supermarket, guess when it really started becoming very prominent? It was uh, 1971 after we went off the gold standard. And here we go. All of a sudden we have all this new fake commodity food products being introduced at a hyper big scale. Um, Let's let's go into something else. You you were kind of attracted to the beef initiative. You read, I guess, the Substack and everything. And you know, let's evolve into how everything has changed your life. How you and I became because you were out in California most of your professional yeah. life, and, and now you're in Austin, Texas, and you're you know you're joining the Bitcoin community there. You're helping out in every direction that you can. So let's evolve into how you got out of the food industrial complex and now how you're into the Bitcoin world of, let's say, in Texas uh, with Austin and now within the Beef Initiative. Yeah, so I left California. Uh, One, the taxes were too high. Two, the mandates and restrictions were too oppressive. And I was just looking for something different. So I said, hey, work doesn't work for me anymore. We've been remote for, I don't know, a better part of a year and a half. And they said, Matt, you got a vax. I said, I haven't, I haven't seen anybody in person for a year and a half. This doesn't make sense to me. So left California, uh, coming as a tax refugee, I got a tax bill that was six, zero percent of my income. That's crazy. Did a hundred percent of the work only get 40% of it. That doesn't, that's not fair, not equitable. So I opt out from that. Um, I kind of meander my way around the United States and land in Austin because there's great people here. The pandemic didn't exist. Uh, everyone's shaking hands, making new friends. Oh my gosh, I can get back to living instead of running away and being afraid of everything. That's the atmosphere in California. Um, I got very fortunate or blessed or stubborn with my investment in Bitcoin. I kept buying it and the value kept increasing. So I no longer need a day job. So Bitcoin essentially retired me. 
And it gave me the freedom to go say, how do I want to help fix the world? Because before I wasn't able to do that. I needed to have a day job that was causing me cognitive dissonance, right? I'd sold seed oils for a living. Once you figure out that they're not good in any way, shape or form, you got to look at yourself and you say, man, I've got blood all over my hands. You used to be everything that you didn't want. So now I'm really interested in giving back, not so much in a philanthropic sense, but because Bitcoin has done so much good for me personally, I want to see it do good for a lot of other people too. And that good is not just the financial freedom that comes with it. It's being able to influence things in a way that I think is a better answer than the way we're doing it now. That's convincing people to have an animal-based lifestyle. That's convincing people to not eat cartonfuls of Doritos every day. That's convincing people to be intentional about when they go out to eat, what they're eating, and why they're going out to eat in the first place. Are they going out because it's common, or are they going out because they are not particularly skilled at making a dish? I want to help people understand what Bitcoin is and why it's good at what it does. But also, I think it's a really interesting chance to fix a lot of the problems in the world. And those problems start with health. If you're not healthy, you're not thinking right. If you're not healthy, how are you going to stand up for anything that you believe in? If you're sick, tired, lazy, and dependent on pharmaceuticals, you're not, you're not sovereign. You're not capable. You can't change the world because you can't go less than six hours without eating. And that is an easy step for you, of course, because you, you've been firsthand, uh, you've lived it, it is your life now, it's kind of your passion. You and I met, uh, I guess it was last Wednesday or Thursday, whenever I got to Austin during the, the freeze and everything, we had a lot oh, yeah. of time to talk, we had a lot of time to kind of formulate saying, hey, let's let's kind of let's work together here you you volunteered to me and i was like all right matt you can go out there and do anything that you want right now in this life and <laughs> i had to ask you the question i said why why are you coming to the beef initiative why are you bringing your food intelligence here and you had some really good answers and you know we'll talk about the evolution of our conversation you know kind of let everybody know what you see within the beef initiative or what caught your eye because I, I need to hear that so other people can hear it and say well this is this is what attracted to me you know i knew that i i needed to be a part of something that was bigger so yeah what what got me excited about the beef initiative is having been on the big evil corporate side of it i know there's regulatory capture i know that there's laws in place that don't make sense i know there's regulations that are there for no reason just to keep other people out and I looked at the beef initiative and said, you know, this is a really cool flywheel. If the price of Bitcoin continues to increase, well, I guess first the censorship resistant, I would like to be able to buy the food that I would like to buy. I don't want to be labeled a climate killer or a over meat eater world destroyer because people have different preferences than me. So having uncensorable money is a huge step in the right direction because if they look at my credit card and they say, Matt, you've used too many carbon credits, you've eaten too many pounds of cow, bad, shame on you, you don't get to do that anymore. Well, now I have a tool that I can go use that's not based on that system. So even though that system might not exist here, you can be sure it's starting in China right now, there's a social credit scoring. I would probably score very lowly, probably a thought criminal, probably a financial terrorist, 
probably a lot of other things that they would not enjoy. So having money that has rules, not rulers is super helpful because I want to be able to purchase the things that I would like to purchase. I don't need somebody watching my transactions and making sure, oh, you, you've had too much this week, Matt. You can't do that. I don't like that. So the beef initiative to me, I looked at it as also an opportunity to get rid of some really bad institutions. So there's a rule that says if you have a processing facility, this is after you grow the animal where it goes to get cut up into parts and pieces, you have to have a 25 foot walkway for sanitization. Now, if there's four people that work in a factory, I don't need a 25 foot walkway for a boot wash station and a hand wash station. You can have a boot wash and you can have a sink. However, the rules and regulations say you've got to have a 25 foot walkway. Well, a 25 foot walkway makes sense if you have a thousand people working in a factory and no one's going to wash their hands. Yeah, you're going to make them walk through the clean tunnel. But if there's four people working in the facility, I can't see a reason to have 25 foot of sanitization. It doesn't make sense. But also it just makes the building more expensive. It makes the uh, permitting more expensive. It makes all of this regulatory capture that keeps small independent producers out of there. It's really hard to go buy a cow direct. I look at the beef initiative as a way to solve that, to route around stupid, useless regulations that are there because someone said, you know, at scale, we need an answer to this. No, that's a bureaucrat making more laws, making it harder. They're not keeping us safer. So what gets me excited about the beef initiative is one, we get to give farmers better saving technology. Now they don't understand Bitcoin and I can help them understand it and why they want it. But the moment their savings works better than what they're doing now, they get a little more freedom. They can start doing things the way that they prefer instead of scraping by and always having to bend the knee to these giant corporations that are monopolists of the market. Does that help answer it? Yeah, that's a great start because, I, you know, we have to give a general outline of, you know, kind of how we're looking at that from the beef initiative perspective. And for you to have your experience that you have in your understanding and the ways that you can form some clarity around, a, you know, a subject line or a, an initiative, <laughs> you know, uh, it's going to be good. One thing that we have a problem within the Bitcoin world is education really good sound education you know we we ask yeah. the wrong questions you know i don't want to go up to a rancher and say hey do you take bitcoin you know and and from the beginning i've i've said why don't we go shake their hands first say who we are look them in the eye and say thank you yeah. would you please educate me more on everything that you do and what got you here as far as your family your tradition your legacy that you're trying to 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 maintain and to you know to keep a hold for your children and everything once we are able to understand their issues how they are captured in many ways as far as regulations as far as the chemical company contracts whatever it might be you know that's okay we we're, we're not there to find out you know or point fingers at them what we're really trying to understand is where is your major problem and then that evolves no matter who you are if you understand bitcoin it evolves into bitcoin because it's going to be right. something it's a new tool that they can leverage well they need education it's not about 
about, yes, we want to be able to use transactional Bitcoin. You know, that's what we're doing within the Beef Initiative to get going here. But it goes so much deeper than this. And so one thing, if you know, if you're a rancher out there listening, if you're if you're a Bitcoiner out there listening, or if you know a rancher, what you and I are going to do is we're going to build, I guess you would say an advisory council of consulting company to where we find a rancher that's ready, you know, with coal like KNC, you're going to go out there next yeah. week and you're going to start from scratch and you're going to be able to go and have a conversation with him on a personal level and sit down and really advise him. And so he can understand what's in front of him. And we're going to nurture that relationship very, very deeply, very wide and with true care. So kind of, why don't you express how you're going to kind of tackle this because it was kind of your idea, you know, the white glove approach concierge service. Yeah. So Bitcoin is inherently confusing. It's something people haven't really considered and it makes you re-question a lot of your foundational knowledge. And so in having gone through this process, you know, I've changed my opinions on so many things. But I've also helped a bunch of people understand what it is and what it does. So I kind of looked at it and said, if there's people out there that understand all about ranching, I don't know how to ranch. I know how to grow a tomato plant and I grow 10 of them. I can't do it at scale. But I do have this very rare knowledge that I would love to share. The same way they go put all their love, attention, effort into a beef, I can take my Bitcoin love and say, hey, let me share that with you. Let me answer your questions. Let me hold your hand through this process because I think there's something in Bitcoin that can help them. But I don't want to just send them a bunch of links and say, read the articles and do a thousand hours of research because they're already busy. They already have multiple day jobs. They already have to work on a weird schedule because when animals are going to have babies, they're going to have babies. That's not nine to five, Monday through Friday. It doesn't work like that. So I want to be able to go out and say, let me help you. Let me explain this to you. Let me answer your questions. Let me answer your wife's questions. Let me answer your husband's questions. Let me answer your children's questions. Because Bitcoin is not one thing. It's one asset, but there's so much more to it than that. And so to be able to go and help steward somebody from, I made my first transaction to, hey, now I've got $10 million of Bitcoin. What do I do with it? How do I leverage it? They're very different conversations. And because I've had to walk everywhere from like, what does this do? How does it work? Into how do you secure so much of this wealth? I just got lucky. I'm two steps ahead of everybody else. But I think I've got a skill set to explain it and a skill set to show people instead of tell them why. And that learn by doing, that experience it together, that have somebody to call when you have a question is so important. Because if you have to figure out Bitcoin on your own, It's really hard. It doesn't have to be. You can have a friend that does it. You can have an advisor to call. And the nice part is we'll get people set up in a way that I don't need to hold their hands anymore. They can be 100% sovereign. But if they need help, hey, they got a phone number. They can call me. They've got a question about it. Hey, Matt, what do you think about this? Hey, I was listening to this. What do you think about this? Hey, how do I go do this? How do I? How do I? They're all great questions. But if you don't know who to ask, it's impossibly complicated because anyone can lead you astray. 
Well, I think that's where it's very dangerous. I was, you know, I was around during the dot-com boom and the dot-com bust. You know, I was younger and, you know, I lived it. I saw it firsthand in the amount of uh, corruption and misinformation and manipulation of even what, you know, dot-com was all about. You know, it was false value, false value, false value. And it was like $1.7 trillion was lost overnight during the the bust. Whenever you look at Bitcoin and the confusions it's thrown out there as far as cryptocurrencies through all the shit coins, uh, what what is Bitcoin? Just nobody knows where to even start. And I think the power behind the beef initiative here from the very beginning is to have that we're going to basically standardize a, a an education model that I haven't seen for the food industry and right. not all not along just with the ranchers but also within the processing you know every touch point that we have in the food industry we're going after it you know we're going after that market access that's taken away from us as consumers and as producers we're going yeah. after that processing part of the pivot point that gets bottlenecked and choked and controls the price of the cow and the delivery of that animal protein to our communities you know then we're going to go to the decentralized uh you know hyper localization of our communities that where we grab that power back that was taken away you know after 1971 especially you know we're hitting it on a lot of fronts and to to try to you know to move forward with this, it's going to be very daunting, but I think we have a pretty good team, you know, in, in with every, you know, the way you're approaching this, you're going to be the guy, but we're going to build a team around you. And, you know, you're, we've yeah, already got, I think about three that's or such four. such an important part that, Go ahead. you know, yeah. like I happen to have knowledge because I've been doing it and staring at it longer than most people. And then I had so much skin in the game that I had to find the answers, right? There's no one you can call that, at least not for me. So if I had to do it all and struggle through it, man, think about how fast someone else can understand it and put it to use for themselves. If we can start that right, if we can help them understand why, and we can also be a resource for people, it doesn't have to be scary. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. Hey, there's a bunch of people that have answers. I happen to have a few of them and what worked for me, which I'm happy to share, but we're going to need a whole set of people that do this. We're going to need everybody that understands it all the way from the wizard technical sense to the financial side, to the idealistic reasons and principles behind it to the ethical reasons and principles behind it there's so many different parts and pieces and so many questions that people are going to have being able to address them in a reasonable way as a person not as a company not as a paid shill not as a youtube influencer go out there shake their hands let them get a look at you and say hey matt i trust you cool let me help answer some questions now you can still validate them you can still double check that's okay that's what's expected. But right now, there's just so much noise. It's hard to figure out what's happening. Well, it's, it makes it impossible. And like you said, if anybody knows the life of a rancher, that's 20 hours a day. And it's just nonstop. Right. And you do. You need that trust. You need that verification. And you need to look people in the eyes and kind of approach them in a way of saying, okay, you're going to bring me protein technology. I'm going to bring you savings technology. Let's learn hand in hand together, you know, symbiotic in a way to where, you know, this two forms of technology that we're going to have to move forward with in our society. And it's the basis of everything that we're going to be doing. Let's do it together. Let's, let's innovate. Right. 
let's let's be the pioneers let's let's be the pioneers let's go on the, a new t- cattle drive that started back in 1880 we're going to do it with food and money now and it's time to do it yeah and i i think it's exactly that they have a skill set i don't have i have right. a skill set they don't have let's compare notes let's figure out how we can get a win-win i'm not on the planet to play player versus player and i win you lose that doesn't that doesn't work for me anymore i used to do that for a decade i have enough of that Let's go get people thriving. Let's figure out how to get better food to more people. Let's figure out how to make our ranchers fabulously wealthy so they can't be censored. There's answers. They've got the food side. I've got the technology side. And I, I've, I, you and I had that conversation in, uh, one morning, I believe, and I said, you imagine a rancher that's been doing this for four generations and he knows every little angle that they come after him as far as manipulation or capture or you know to subsidize the market or the futures the grain uh the weather the you know whatever it is that the rancher always has to be thinking about the animal protein producer has to be thinking about you get a guy like that and you basically or a family or a woman it doesn't matter a person that has been in this industry that long and you give them that foundation knowledge of what Bitcoin can do for the cattle industry, there's going to be a light that comes on in a rancher's head. And guess what? The beef industry just changed forever. What what I like is when you're a rancher, you understand risk. You do it every day. Sometimes you understand financial risks with your hedges or your grain purchases or your insurance purchases. Sometimes you have other areas of risk that you don't know. Oh man, is it going to rain or not? Is it going to storm or not? I want to be able to de-risk a very critical part of people's future. And that de-risking is savings. Savings is broken. If you save in dollars, you're not going to have a good time. It's not an effective method for it. Let me show you how to save in Bitcoin. And then when the Bitcoin number goes up and all of a sudden your savings double, triple, quadruple, you can stand up a little taller. You can choose to do things for principled reasons instead of for economic reasons. You can take a longer term time approach with how you're doing something because maybe your inventory doesn't have to turn as fast if you've got a giant war chest. So I want to help people understand what Bitcoin can do for them because it's done so much good for me. It can do so much good for everyone else too. I'm not, I just happened to get it earlier. We're not done. There's a interesting saying, you know, fix the money, fix the world. Someone's fixing the money right now. They're working on Bitcoin all day, coding up new applications, all the new specs that are coming out. That's great. I'm going to focus on fixing the world. And right now it's education because people need to understand what it is and what it could be because there's an answer for what it is today and also what it will grow into. But if you have to explain it in a way that people understand, everyone's going to come at it from a different perspective. Some people with savings technology. Some people, it's a way to not have to earn your income twice, once when you get paid, once when you go invest it. Some people, it's a great way to just not be censored by the government. Some people, it's a great way to avoid paying estate taxes when you got to pass it on to your kids. There's answers out there for people. I want to help them find it because I've had to go look for them. And when and we're you and I, you know, individually, we're learning how to ask the right questions that once we ask those questions, our, our, my mission is to not only ask the question, but to give a solution that's 10 times better than the issue that we're 
bitching about. (laughs) And, you know, one thing that I've got you, that you and I, and I I love doing this, uh, you know, I asked you, I said, you know, I I asked a lot of ranchers says, where's the value of that cow? (laughs) Can you tell me, you know, is it in the grain? Is it whatever? And I put you on that and let's, let's just start the conversation because we're going to take this somewhere and we're going to take it somewhere this year. And we're going to make it a little roadmap of understanding where the value of the cow might lie, or do we have to know where, what, what are we missing here? This is a math problem that we're going to solve. Yeah. So I turned on my old work brain and I got out a piece of paper and I started thinking about this. And so I thought in pictures and I drew some graphs and charts and I kind of scratched my head and I said, okay, how can I value this? I can value it at time zero. Hey, the cow is born. Okay. There's probably a price point to that. Okay. What about six months later? Okay. There's probably a different price point because a six month old calf is different than a one day old calf. Well, what about 18 months, the moment before slaughter? Okay, there's probably a different value for that than any of the other times. So then I started thinking, okay, if there's three potential values for said cow when the rancher has it, there's a different value after it's butchered. There's a different value when it's packaged and in front of a consumer. Okay, so there's many different parts of the value. What does that value look like? Is that a linear increase? Is that a step function? So linear would be it goes straight. You know, the cow gets valuable by $1 a day every single day. Okay, that's one model. Maybe it happens in a step function. You know, the calf is valuable, but it's more valuable after it no longer needs milk. You know, hey, once it's had all of its, uh, sorry, once it's of a certain weight or age, it might be more valuable because now you can kill it. Maybe it's more valuable after you process it because before you can't really handle that in your home. Your knives aren't big enough and nobody can really pick up a whole cow by themselves. So maybe there's value in different phases. So maybe it happens in a step function where like it's this value until something happens. And when you kill the cow, it's more valuable because now you can eat it. So then I started thinking about, you know, where, where the rancher would pick to establish value. If someone said uh, the financial term mark to market, if the game ended today, what would you value your business at? Okay. They, they can probably figure that out, but do they use a linear? Do they use a step function or is it? this cow is not monetized until I sell it. The moment I sell it, it doesn't matter what its price point is because every cow is going to yield me $300 take home profit. Okay. That's a different way to consider it. So then I started noodling over it and I, I actually came to the conclusion it might be a bad question to try and value the cow Mm -hmm. because the cow is going to have a different value to a different farmer. And depending on their mental model or even their accounting model. So generally accepted accounting principles, You know, is this activity-based costing? Is this future value costing? Because there's different levers you can pull to understand how you would value it, I actually said, I don't think I need to value the cow at any point except for when I convert it into dollars or Bitcoin or an event happens. So if you have a house, what's your house value? Now, you can look every day, but you don't actually know until you sell it. I think that's a much better mental model. But again, every farmer is going to have a different set of interests and how they're thinking about it because there's so many levers they can pull. And that's going to be interesting how that evolves out is, you know, because we're going to build some graphs on that. We're going to, you know, kind of create a a general uh, visual understanding. And this is going to be a fun year really building that model out. And that's something that we're bringing into the initiative as well. You know, it's just not going to be conversational. This is going to be hard fact, you know, mathematical equations 
after we've talked to you said rancher and what do you think and so that will drill down that'll go into its own little rabbit hole you know that we're looking forward to um and that that's so like the mental models are so important right getting back to the food intelligence if you're intentional about what you eat and why you eat it and when you eat it you should also be that intentional about your finances that intention matters and if we can get better mental models out there for how people think about things they can make better decisions, they can make more decisions more quickly. That's going to help save the world in a very different way because if you only get to make one decision a year, then you better get it right. But if you can make four decisions a year, you get a little bit more turnaround on that. Hey, without a good decision or a bad decision. So changing the mental model about when and how the the value of the animal is captured, man, imagine it as a limiting belief. Oh, I don't do this on Wednesday because I don't. And then someone convinces you that Wednesday is a great day to do that. And you say, oh, hmm, why did I have I don't do this on Wednesday? I don't know. But you change your mind and all of a sudden things get a little bit better. I think that there's some beautiful models to be built here to help explain this is the way you used to think about it. Let me try and convince you there's a different way to think about it. It's going to let you answer different questions and come up with better answers to the same I love that. And and one thing that you and I also discussed, I think it was the last day that I was there in Austin after I'd gone to Kerrville or before I went to Kerrville, I can't remember. (laughs) But anyways, uh, one thing was, you know, a lot of people say, well, I can't buy beef, you know, from a producer. It's, It's more expensive. And, you know, we said, okay, let's break this down. Let's get some visuals on this. Let's compare to the market out there, you know, from the Whole Foods to Costco to wherever it might be that people are buying their beef. Let's break this down in a way that they, there's no argument there. We we're going to, we're going to prove that this form of low time preference food sourcing is actually saving you money in the long run. I, I think there's a, most people consider food as an input, right? I, I need it now. I like to think of it as prepaid healthcare, right? right. I, if I eat better today, my long-term healthcare costs are going to be fractions of what other people's are going to be. Like diabetes is a management disease. It's ongoing expenses. Well, if I don't want to pay ongoing expenses to stay on the planet, maybe I can just prepay healthcare and eat better food to not have those problems. That's a different type of model that matters. And that same type of value that says, okay, if food is prepaid healthcare, let me compare the value of a box of beef to what's available in my supermarket. Is it labeled pasture raised? Well, what does that mean? Did they have antibiotics? Did they have hormones? Are they putting the chemicals in there? Are they spraying the meat so it looks more red and shiny when it sits in a case for a month? These type of things need to be taken into consideration. So when most people switch over to the animal-based lifestyle, at the beginning, they get sticker shock. <gasps> it's so expensive. I'm not used to eating this much protein. But your overall grocery bills are going down. You're not buying popcorn and garbage and sugar and fun. You're buying food. But most people say, I've never spent this much before. Yeah, but you're buying you know, six weeks worth of protein. And you're not buying all the other garbage that used to fill up your budget. And so having a way to share people that this is what the comparison price is helps them understand the value that's being delivered here and just you know living it every day i I mean i don't i don't have to eat that much i'm not i'm never hungry i don't even that's not something i ever worry about i think i go to the grocery store twice a month 
uh, now. And it's just a part of my lifestyle is like, man, I can't imagine having to do all that extra work, all that extra navigation through a corrupt system that I have to make these decisions on. Let's let's look at a mother that's at mama bears. They look at food all day long. You know, they're trying to feed their family, trying to feed their kids and everything. I feel sorry, uh, empathetic, I guess, in a way about having to make those decisions with the information at hand and how deceptive all of the information is that people are trying to make informed decisions because people aren't doing this just because they're just irresponsible and they want to lead a gluttonous life. That has nothing right. to do with this. The, the, the amount of deception that you step into that world of the marketing plan that is our industrial food complex you that's a form of anxiety that should not exist in people's lives and in the past once again going back to how our grandfathers ate that wasn't they they just had that confidence they had that peace of mind they had that basically they they didn't have that type of anxiety that exists in our society right now and they they didn't have decision fatigue Right, so Apple got crazy popular because they had one phone, one laptop, one desktop. There weren't options, right? If you go to the supermarket, all you're encountering is hundreds of options for the same thing. Like if you walk down the cereal aisle, there's, I don't know what, 70 different flavors of cereal? That's, you have to pick one of 70? That's a crazy hard decision. And that's one aisle. If you say, hey, high 90% of my calories are coming from animals, oh, all of a sudden, you get to pick the animals you want to eat. Would you like beef? Would you like fish? Would you like pork? Would you like chicken? Would you like duck? Oh, my gosh. That's a way easier set of decisions than, oh, I need to pick one of 70 cereals for breakfast and one of 300 flavors of salad dressing for a salad at lunch. And then what am I having for dinner? And what two sides am I preparing? And, oh, my gosh. It's such a mental load. <sighs> And think about whenever you go to the grocery store and then you have a mother that's, you know, taking care of her children children are there. How many times does she have to say no? You know, that's that's, of course, you know, a structure of, you know, discipline or whatever it is within that family. But the amount of pressure that the parents have to um, go through as far as, you know, from TV commercials to the the cartoons on every box of food that exists anymore, you know, that type of manipulation and to be a parent is so difficult. And for that to have caused friction in that relationship of a parent child relationship, it's almost getting criminal in a way. It's like our parents do not have the ability to have that level of structure of saying no every dang time that, you know, a child, well, Johnny gets to eat these Doritos you know, Sally gets to eat these, this blueberry cereal, whatever it is, man. It I, is nonstop, relentless pressure. Yeah. And it, it doesn't have to be this complicated. Like, again, uh, we have better mental models for how to do it. Hey, eat mostly animals. Oh, okay. How do you solve that? Keep your freezer full of them. Oh, what's for dinner this week? Take it out of the freezer. You don't need to go to the grocery store. I tell everybody that gets a a freezer full of uh, beef uh, that they're going to wake up at three o'clock in the morning and go admire it and just be okay with that. They're going to have that level of confidence. There's also a, a really interesting community sense of confidence that I have so much animal in my house. I can share it with other people. And that's just as big of a part of food as what you're eating is. Are you sharing it? Because if two is one and one is none, 
I need to make sure that if the food supply chain is going to get weird, I can help other people that aren't as fortunate. I've been blessed to have an enormous set of resources. What am I going to do when I die? I can't take them with me. Who's going to get busy sharing them? And that food security that says, hey, if the trucks don't go because they're all protesting in Canada, I have food. I can share that with my neighbors. I can alleviate suffering. I don't need to rely on anybody else. I have that ability. That's a cool feeling. Oh, it's it's the best in, you know, scaling the beef initiative to, you know, bringing all the producers in, all the suppliers in like we've done with coal, with KNC cattle. It's like, OK, we're going to build these beef boxes. It's going to be through the beef initiative. You can buy with Bitcoin if you want to. You can buy with Fiat. We want right. uh, even coal. This was coal. And he because he's the first one, it's like we're not just exclusive for KNC cattle. We want a thousand producers to come into to the beef initiative and say can we sell beef boxes and that's the beginning yeah. point wait until we get into being able to source the quarter of the cow the half of the cow the education that we're going to be able to bring as far as the cuts the nutrition i mean once we get the producers coming in if you are a producer out there if you are a rancher come to the beef initiative go to the producer section and you can put your ranch in there right now and these bitcoiners they will come out and they will meet you they will shake your hand i don't know how many people are coming and contacting me how can i help how can i help the one way you know above and beyond that you can help right now is if you're using a rancher across the united states go to the beef initiative put them in there there's there's a tab that says add producer let's get this thing going because we have a database of producers and suppliers across the united states what i want to do in this beginning month or so is let all the bitcoiners all the people out here listening that are reading the Substack, come to the beef initiative and add your local producer rancher so we can go out there and meet them have a conversation with them maybe Maybe Matt will be coming out to help them understand and educate on Bitcoin. Yeah, I, I'm here to answer people's questions about it. Like that's, it's a skill set I've got. And I'm happy to share it because it, it's not a secret only for Matt. No, it's not. And, you know, you're going to come to Kerrville and, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to put you on the spot. You know, you're speaking in Kerrville, right? You do know that. Yes. <laughs> I think everybody's we're going to announce everything formally probably in about i don't know eight days or so but we're going to have a conference it's going to be the first ever beef initiative conference it's going to be in kerrville texas uh that friday is the 23rd and people will start showing up uh saturday is going to be full uh we're going to have speakers such as marty bent uh yourself uh adam curry and a few more people that i'll uh, save for now but uh, we're almost complete with the planning. Uh, it's going to be a very fun weekend. If you don't know anything about Kerrville, look it up. It's a cool uh, Texas town. It's got a lot of heritage to it. It's it's going to be a fantastic uh, place that we're having it. I'll announce that when we do the formal announcement. Um, saying that, moving forward with you, Matt, you and I, with our plans, we have a lot of them. Um, we're, yeah. we're outlining everything. We're really taking action. Let's go back and let's paint a picture of the what we're going to do this year let's let's kind of give a general outline because given this general outline we're going about an hour and a half now i want to come back and each time we're going to build these building blocks of knowledge 
education, intentional, low time preference, vision, legacy building. And so let's let's let everybody kind of hear from your mouth and then I'll kind of close it out. And, you know, we'll, we'll come back in about two weeks and have this conversation again. Man, I don't even know where to start. I guess let's start, let's start with, let's start with this. You know, I, I, I contact you right now and I say, Hey Matt, I've got this guy out in Georgia. Would you go talk to him? What are we going to do? Yeah. Oh man. I am going to go out to that farm. I'm going to bring some Bitcoin toys. I'm going to bring a hardware wallet. I'm going to bring a metal plate to stamp their seed into. And I'm going to go spend time. I'm going to understand what they do. I'm going to understand why they do it. And I'm going to answer questions from them. And then if they're interested in Bitcoin, I'm going to show them how Bitcoin works. And I'm going to make sure that they get enough handholding to understand how to do it, why to do it, why it's important, what can be done with it. Like any tool, you know, a knife can also be a shovel. Maybe it's not the best shovel. Maybe that's not the way to use your knife ever again if you want it to be a knife. But Bitcoin is the same way. What does it do? What can it do for me? How does it work? People need to know this stuff. So my function is going to be to go out to shake people's hands and help them to understand what it can do. But also to have a leave behind that says, when you have questions, call me. This is not a one time like, all right, you get it. You've got the PhD, see you never. No, 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 this is ongoing because I'm fortunate enough to be two steps ahead. When you say, hey, uh, I've got enough wealth saved in Bitcoin. What can I do with it? I have a playbook for that. I know how we can take an asset backed loan without having to sell. So there's no capital gains taxes. Now we're playing the rules of the state and I'm getting a reducible, reduced taxable income, access to liquidity, and now I can take a levered position in case I want to win at an expedited rate. Now I get it. Maybe people don't want that type of risk. That's okay too. Let me show you another playbook for how to reduce your risk. That's what I want to go through. And once you've had that conversation and you have that, because you'll know, you'll know whenever there's a form of clarity and, and clear communication between the question and the answer session that you're going to have. Once that relationship is started, we're going to, we're next to here. Here comes, here comes Texas Slim. Let's get you into right. the beef initiative. Let's, let's get this, this intelligence that got you here from your legacy. Let us tell your story. Let's make a production right. out of who you are if you want to. You know, that's that's their choice, of course. You know, come 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 join the party. Come join the conferences. Come help everybody understand what's going on in your world and how we're going to change it and how we're going to basically change the beef industry as we know it and be very bold about right. it. It's time to be bold. It's time to be very intentional. It's time to have some confidence and it's time to have some um, – some new visionary kind of aspects to what food truly is. And, you know, we can have a very good time at this. The, the amount of good people that I'm meeting on a daily basis is blowing me away right now. And I'm, I'm, I'm inviting everybody to the damn party. It's about to get started and it's about to be springtime. And I think 2022 is going to be a fantastic and phenomenal year for all of us. If we all just join together and let's do this together, let's make a collaborative effort to, you know, form a new way of looking at our food right and so by saying that you know everybody look forward to um, seeing and hearing from Matt and Kerrville of course but let's uh let's come back in a couple of weeks um let's do this in two in two weeks on a Saturday how's that cool 
I'm in. Matt, you know, uh, you know how, um, how much respect I have for you, um, how honored I am to have you on the team to help us out and, um, well, you. you know, and how we're going to move forward. I think it's going to be pretty exciting. So um, thank you again. It's a pleasure getting to have you on this podcast. I think a lot of people are going to respond very well to this and um, let's keep it going. Let's keep the education going. Let's change the world. What do you say? Hey guys, this is Texas Slim. I wanted to reach out on the after show and express my gratitude and thanks for everybody that's coming along on this journey with us. Um, we've got a base layer value set now. Um, the Beef Initiative platform has launched. We are selling beef in beef boxes. Um, we are accepting Bitcoin and fiat. Um, there's a lot of things going on within the Beef Initiative. There's many arms of this and many facets that are about to be released. We have a very, very strong team. As everybody is paying attention to all of these distractions in this world, we are going to build and we're going to create, we're going to innovate, and we're going to disrupt. Our intentions are to save children's lives. We're going to reinvent what the beef industry is in ways that a lot of people do not understand. Most of you people listening right now, you understand what we're about to embark on. Let's stay strong. If you can attend our conferences, come to our conferences. If you can catch us on Twitter, catch us on Twitter. If you want to come to the beef initiative and contribute, please do so. We encourage everybody to do this. This is first mover innovation of technology and of industry and of food supply. This is going to take and require a very low time preference approach to our consumption, to our expectations and to our perceptions. I asked everybody to come along on the ride. It's gonna be a slow burn, just like they've slow burned us into metabolical failure as a nation. We're not gonna have it anymore and we're going to be strong, we're going to be powerful. And this has so much more to do with building legacies and reflecting on heritage to leverage a new form of thinking, of living and consuming across the nation and hopefully across the world. Stay tuned. Here we go. And I want to really give plenty of thanks to my very good friend, Cole Bolton, Michael, KNC Cattle, they are first movers. They are working their butts off 20 hours a day to supply Texas, their local area, and some people are already across the nation, a good source of pure animal protein. That's Texas beef. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs>